The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The test. <laughs> Let me just read the text to you first and you'll see why it's, that's the title. This is what Paul says. He's finishing this letter. Paul has borne his heart in this letter like in no other, just about. Second uh, Corinthians and Galatians, you're getting double dose. That both those letters, Paul really bears his soul to these people that he's writing to. And this is what he says in uh, the final chapter of Second Corinthians, chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. The first time he planted the church, he went back later, visited them, and dealt with some issues. And now he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Probably in your text, that'll be capitalized in some way or it's set off because this is a quote from Deuteronomy. This was a principle of the law. You can only establish a fact about someone by, the, by two or three witnesses. Not just one witness, but by two or three witnesses. He goes on, he says, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. I got to tell you why he says this. It sounds so severe. It's because he's being accused of being so soft that he never even deals with sin in the lives of the people that he preaches to. And so he's saying, I'm going to deal with these things. Verse 3, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the implication of this text for today. This is the application. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray uh, again. Father, please uh, cause your word to penetrate our hearts. We are grateful that you've written this for us through the Apostle Paul, and the message is exactly what we need to hear today, so we pray that you would bring it to bear upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The test. 
We're actually going to be looking primarily at verses 5 through 10, where we have this explanation of the test that he says he wants them to test themselves. This is a tough one. I can remember when this was being quoted all the time a few years ago is when there was something kind of sweeping the church, through the church, Lordship Salvation, uh, which was uh, the reason that was sweeping through the churches was because John MacArthur was quite concerned that he had many believers, many professing believers in his church who didn't seem to have the evidence that they were actually had a relationship with Christ. And so he wrote a book, The Gospel According to Jesus Christ, and it kind of swept through the church. We had one lady in the church then who's now in heaven, finally secure and complete. But she had such a tender conscience that she listened to those messages, a whole series of messages, and she began to doubt her salvation because she kept testing herself and testing herself and testing herself. And she really misunderstood the message. Uh, We're not saved because we're sinless. If that were true, there's nobody here that would go to heaven, right? We are saved because of what Christ has done. It's our faith in him. And so why are we testing ourselves? Well, because uh, if you notice... Here is the test in uh, verse 13. This is actually, I'm not really supposed to do this kind of thing. I'm giving you, this is the uh, NIV. And and I'm doing this because it's easier to understand the flow of this sentence. I'm sorry, I haven't done that yet. This is actually a a quote from Alan Redpath. This is a commentary on 2 Corinthians. But I want you to read, I want you to hear what he says this test is all about based upon the text. He says, the kind of testing Paul is talking about here is not looking for sin. It is a man looking for Jesus. Because that's what he says, unless you don't have Jesus in you. So this is the test to see if, look and see if Jesus is in you. He's not looking for evil. He does not have to look far for that. For he knows that in the flesh dwelleth no good thing, according to Paul. But he is searching within his heart for evidences of the indwelling Holy Spirit life. And Redpath says, oh, there are tokens within that Christ is in him by his spirit as a living power. And because he is there, because Christ is there, he is dealing with all these things. He goes on to say, this is is bigger print for most of us, that we can read this. It is is self-examination that keeps the heart tender. See, this is a real issue. Is Christ living in you? It's a fact that many professing Christians have never experienced a new birth. If you remember, Jesus met with the teacher of Israel. His name was Nicodemus. He was a primary teacher in the, in, among the Israelites, among the Jews. And Jesus said to him, he, because he begins to evaluate Jesus and say, we think you've come from God because of what you're doing and what you're saying. And Jesus says to him, you know, the problem is you couldn't evaluate me because unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. You must be born again. And being born again is having Christ come to live within you. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, when you are born again, Christ comes to live within you. This is how we get eternal life. Christ comes to live within us. And so this self-examination that keeps the heart tender, it is self-examination which keeps the will submissive. It is self-examination which keeps the mind open to the leading of the Spirit of God. We recognize that our greatest need is not becoming better at living the Christian life in a way that people are impressed with, our greatest need is to come to know Christ. It's to have a relationship with Christ. 
It's to see the evidences of Christ living in us, in all of our relationships, in all of our life. Now, this is the, this is the NIV that I, I put here because it's so easy to understand. In verse 10, Paul says, this tells you why this test is necessary. It has to do with what he has told us in 2 Corinthians. He's under fire. He's being criticized by some new teachers that have come into the church at Corinth. He's the one who planted the church. If we were to go back and read Acts 18, where Paul went to Corinth and preached the gospel, and people came to faith in Christ, and a church was formed. And he has been close to them this whole time. But now there are some critics who've come in and said, why are you listening to him? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's no apostle. He's a fake apostle. We know the real apostles. And so they have communicated this, and Paul is responding to that in this letter. And so this is why one of the criticisms is this. Paul is mighty in his letters. But when he is physically present, he's meek as a lamb. In other words, he doesn't confront anybody about their sin. I had a young man tell me some time back, a family that were here and they moved back east, and he was out here visiting, and, and I said, how's it going and everything? And, and he was telling me about the church he was going to. He said, I love it. The pastor tells everybody that they're sinners. He nails them to the wall every week. You go away knowing that you're really a sinner. I said, really? And he said, I love it. I said, tell me the kind of effects it's had in your life. Well, he didn't know of any effects. He just thought, this is what you ought to preach. You ought to, you ought to point out people's sins and tell them why they're, if you think you are a Christian, you're kidding yourselves. Here's the problem. There are people sitting in this room who need to hear someone confront them about sin, someone who sees it and knows it. But there are also people, I'm assuming there is, maybe there is no sinner in this room, but there are also people here who have very tender consciences. And if you just intimate that perhaps they may not know Christ, they will assume they don't. They'll be condemned by it. And so we have to be careful about that. Well, this is what Paul wrote in verse 13. This is his explanation. He says, this kind of testing uh, Paul talking about here is not looking for sin. Oh, I'm sorry, I got wrong place. Second uh, Corinthians 13.10. This is why I write these things when I am absent. See, that's what he's been accused of. Oh, he's really tough when he writes you letters. But when he comes into your presence, he's afraid to even look you in the eye. And so Paul says, this is why I write these things when I'm absent. This is, why? Why, Paul? So that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority that the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. That's the authority that he's given to leaders in the church to build people up and not to tear them down. Remember, Paul has said this a couple of times in 2 Corinthians. He said, I, um, I don't want to lord it over your faith. I want to be co-workers for your joy. I want to see you flourish and grow in the faith. I want you to believe the promises of God that have been given to you. I want you to believe how blessed you've been by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to believe what he wrote, what Paul would say. I want you to believe what I wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then enumerate them. I've asked people before, what does Paul say in Ephesians 1 about you being blessed? And most people know that first part. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. 
But what about the rest of it when he starts enumerating all these blessings? Do you know how he's blessed you? Well, he set his love on you in eternity past. And then he, he laid out a plan by which he was going to conform you into the image of Christ and that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. What happens to a lot of Christians? They think, I'm just a special kind. I, uh, I'm not, I don't have that. Everybody else has it. This is why second blessing theology sells so well in the church. It's much easier to tell people, you need the second blessing. Yeah, you're a Christian, but you know what? You need the second blessing or maybe the third. I grew up in a church where we believed in three blessings, salvation, sanctification, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So maybe you're just on level one and you need to move up to level two. Or maybe you need to move up to level three. That sells well because all of us are aware of how weak and how unlike Christ we are. And Paul is not saying examine yourselves to see just how much unlike Christ you are. He says examine yourself to see if you can see Christ. You see the effects of Christ in your life. And we'll see in a second some clear evidences of that. The next thing I I just want to mention is, uh, when is intervention necessary? When are we supposed to confront one another about sin? Most of you are like me. I I want to be nice. I want to be like Paul here. I don't want to say mean things to people. I don't want to tell you that you need to change, that you need to stop doing what you're doing and start doing the right thing. I'd rather not find out about those things. I know I'm, I probably should, shouldn't even be a pastor because I, I like people too much. There are times when we are to intervene. Notice this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. In fact, I think I'll have you turn there because this is something you ought to mark in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's writing to a very young church, probably just months old, these believers. And so he's telling them how to relate to each other And uh, this is what he says in in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5. He says, We urge you, brethren, young believers, by the way, a young church, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The word admonish, nuthateo, means to confront the mind. You need to get out of this situation you're in. You need to stop living in that, this, these circumstances. You ought to change because you're a follower of Christ now. And in this case, guess what it was about? In, in First and Second Thessalonians, those who were unruly were a group of young men who refused to work for a living. They figured it was easier just to mooch off of other of Christians. Because Jesus was coming soon, as Paul said. Why should we go out and try to work for a living? And Paul's going to tell him, you need to work with your hands so that you can meet your own needs and and also to give to others. So he says, what are you supposed to do with people that are living in an unruly way? Well, you admonish them. The word admonish is strong. You uh, You admonish the unruly. Now, unruly means someone's failing, refusing to live according to the teachings of Christ. Failing to live as Christ has commanded us to live. You remember, all of you remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Remember the three things Jesus said you're supposed to do to make disciples? Well, he says, as you're going, you make disciples by 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's leading them to Christ, and they come to know Christ and submit to his leadership, his authority, his kingship, and they're baptized in his name. And then what was the last thing? Teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. I'm actually supposed to know what the commandments of Christ are. Let me give you a real shorthand of the commandments of Christ. Love one another. Love God. Love one another. And love the world the way you're supposed to love the world that validates the gospel, but not in the way that you should not love the world. You know, you know that we're told to love the world, we're told not to love the world, right? Uh, we're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet 1 John chapter 2 says, stop loving the world and the things that are in the world, because all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes of boastful pride of life, are not of the Father. I think it was J.I. Packer said, if you love the world the way God loves the world, you will not love the world the way you're not supposed to love the world. In other words, we're supposed to love people in this world in such a way that it validates the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've all heard this, that we should love the sinner and hate the sin, right? And some people say, I don't think I could do that. Oh, yes, you can, because you're doing it all the time. You love yourself, right? Of course. We can love the sinner and still hate the sin. The thing about Christians isn't that the mark of of being a follower of Jesus Christ is not that you really tell people off and you stand firm against sin in everybody else's life. The mark of following Christ is you love people. And this is what we are as the people of, of Christ. We are people who love God, love one another, and we serve the world. We want to serve the world in a way that it makes the gospel of Jesus Christ very clear as they watch us. I don't know if you believe me or not. I can't tell. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. That we're to serve people. There's a very liberal uh, editorial writer for the New York Times who's certainly not a Christian, but he's, I've, heard him, I've read him say this a half a dozen times, how impressed he is with evangelical Christians around the world. Because regardless of where you go, where people are really hurting and really in bad shape, people who are sick with certain diseases and that kind of thing, and nobody wants to touch them, you'll find Christians there. Why is that? That's a mark of a follower of Christ. And so when you're testing yourself, this is one of the things that you want to see. Is there any evidence that Jesus is living in me? We are to intervene in one another's life when... We see certain things in people's lives. And one of those things is when someone's living openly in contradiction to the commandments of Jesus. I, I was speaking at a senior's retreat some years back. I, was a, I wasn't a senior back then. And I was speaking for this men, a men's retreat. And these guys, I'm teaching. And in the breaks, we're talking. One time we were standing out over this bridge. And as these guys are talking, it is obvious to me that several of them are just out-and-out racist. A total, absolute contradiction to their profession of having Christ living in them. 
I mean, you do realize if you harbor racist kind of thoughts that you're basically saying, these people who Christ died for are worthless. He shouldn't have died for them. They're objects of God's grace. And so we take the gospel to them. And so when we see one another living in ways that are total contradiction to the commandments of Christ, we should admonish one another. I give you the permission to admonish me when you see that. But you better be right. Uh, (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Galatians 6, restore those overtaken in a trespass. You know the passage. He says, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, which means the word trespass is a word for sin, which describes it as this. You're walking along doing fine, and all of a sudden you fall down. You are, you've fallen down alongside of what you should be. And when someone's overtaken in a fault, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of meekness, knowing that you too could be tempted in the same way. So admonish the unruly, restore those overtaken in a trespass. First uh, John 1, we heard read this morning. We need to confront it as John does when we minimize sin in our life. If you remember what, what Dave read this morning in 1 John, he says, I'm writing this so that your joy would be made full, so that you would enjoy fellowship with us and with Jesus Christ and with the Father. And he says, but you've got to remember that God is light. And there's no darkness in him. So if you have fellowship with God, you've got to realize you're having fellowship with one who is light. He's the source of all light. And so I can't have that kind of relationship with God that I can have with some people where we can just agree to ignore our sin. And so this is what Paul said. This is what John says. If you're going to have fellowship with God, first of all, you can't say things like, I don't have sin. That expression is referring to the fact that you're, you don't have any sinful inclinations. You don't have what some call a sin principle or sin nature. I'm just pure as a driven snow. I never have any evil thoughts or evil temptations. I hope you don't believe anybody would believe that. And so he says, uh, if you want to have fellowship with God, you can't, you can't say, I have no sin. Because if you do that, you're deceiving who? Well, you're not deceiving your wife. Right? Or your husband, if you're a woman and you're a wife but you deceive yourself. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And then a couple verses later in verse 10, he says, and if we say, I have not sinned, and what he means by that is the, the, the construction of that little phrase is, if you say, sure, I commit sin, but there's no, it's no big deal. God doesn't care. There's no ongoing effects. He says, if you do that, you're calling God a liar. Because you're saying sin doesn't matter to God. He doesn't care if you obey Christ. Well, if you have that opinion, then please don't read the Bible. It's going to really mess up your theory. Because the Bible says that God commands you to obey his son. He commands you to love one another. He commands you to to walk in obedience to Christ. Do we disobey? Yeah, I could say everybody here who's, who disobeys on some kind of a regular basis, maybe once a year, raise your hand. You'd all have to raise your hand. Because, of course, 
But in, right in the middle of those two verses, John says this. This is my life's verse. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? See, so being, having Christ in you, one of the evidences of having Christ in you is you confess your sins. And you, and you give God thanks for his forgiveness. You don't do penance. You don't think that you have to pray for, through until God feels good about you again. You confess your sin. And, when you, and confess, homologeo is the word. And you can tell by the sound of that word, homo, homogenized uh, homo sapiens and so forth. Homo means same. And the other part of that word means to say, to say the same thing. What does that mean? It means you say the same thing about your sin that God does. You, you men, when you don't love your wife, you don't say to God, uh, God, sorry about that, but you know how she is. No, you say the same thing God does. What I just did was sin because I withheld love from my wife. And I confess it to you, and I thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses me from all sin. And then you confess it to your wife. Ah. You do, you do recognize that in the New Testament, most of the time the word, the, this phrase of confessing sins is confessing to those people that we sin against. This is key in 1 John 1, 9. It's talking about confessing to the Father. But most of the time, it's talking about confessing your sin when you sin against a person. I guess we could take five or ten minutes and all you husbands could confess your sin to your wife and get her forgiveness for failing to love her as you should or vice versa. You can tell I'm like, Paul, I don't want to confront women. Uh, If you aren't submitting to your husband, you don't respect him, then you need to confess that, not only to God, but to your husband for that sin. So this is when it's necessary for intervention, when we admonish the unruly, when a person's living an ongoing, unruly lifestyle, when uh, someone has been overtaken in a fault, when sin is minimized, when you can see this pattern in a person's life, ah, big deal. So I sinned. Jesus died for my sins. I don't have to worry about that. Or the last one, 1 Corinthians 11 when we fail to judge our own sin. 1 Corinthians 11 says, if we would judge our sins, 11.31, if we would judge our sins, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. In other words, uh, you will never be condemned as a believer, ever. You'll never be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. But God wants you to walk in righteousness, and so he's willing to chasten you when you develop a pattern of unbelief and unruliness in your life. Because he wants you to judge your own sin. In 1 Timothy 5.24, it says that some men's sins go before them. In other words, it's obvious. Everybody can see it before they get to the day of judgment. You know that that person is carrying a heavy load of, of guilt. But others follow after. What he means by that, some, we can hide sin. I grew up in a church where that was really, I didn't even know it. It wasn't objectively taught, but I just picked this up that you better not let people know you sinned. 
Because if you do, you'll never get anywhere among these people. So you, if you do sin, hide it. That's totally unbiblical. If you do sin, confess it. If you're confronting somebody about sin, this is the pattern that Jesus gave us. And this is based upon uh, what we read earlier about two or three witnesses. If, I, if I'm coming to confront someone because I can see they're living in a life pattern of sin, not just a one-time thing, but a life pattern of sin, and I go to them and they refuse to listen, Jesus said, take two or three wit- witnesses with you. Take one or two others so that you'll have two or three witnesses. Because we want to bring everything to bear upon the situation so the person will repent and experience freedom again. You do understand that sin is a slavery, right? I mean, when you develop certain patterns of sin in your life and you just keep coming back to it, coming back to it, and now in our language we call it, in popular language, called addiction. I can't stop doing this. I know it's wrong. I want to be free from this, but I can't stop it. And sometimes it's, it could be substance abuse, but it could also be gossip or slander. That's pretty addictive too, isn't it? And so uh, what we are to do is, is we need to take sin seriously in our lives and judge sin in our own lives. One of the great benefits of being married to a believer is they will be honest with you when you think you're righteous in a situation and they know you're not being righteous. I can see certain couples whispering to each other right now. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know what I mean, right? And that's a great benefit. When somebody says, I think you're not looking at this right. Somebody is my wife, Judy. When she says, I don't think you're seeing this right. That's a great benefit. Because it pushes me to judge my own sin so that the Lord doesn't have to judge me. Now, how do we do this? Well, we do it through the Word of God. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 describes the Bible with this characteristic. It says, all Scripture, that means the entire, from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is inspired of God. That means God-breathed. And profitable for what? Four things. You see that? For teaching, for reproof, that's like rebuke, confronting sin, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Those things all go together. The first is the Bible teaches you what you need to know. That's why we're doing Sunday nights on the teachings of the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible, because we need to understand what the Bible teaches about all the important things in life. But it's also important for reproof. It reproves us. That's why some people stop reading the Bible, because it can be painful when it reproves you of your sin, doesn't it? I mean, I've had this happen many times in the middle of the night where I can't sleep. I get up and I start reading the text, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, just like that. I used to like to ride dirt bikes back when it didn't hurt to fall down. And in Richmond, Richmond Hills, it was really a fun place to ride, except there were really deep ruts there. And so you get on a steep section of a hill and you're trying to stay out of the rut. But if you get down in a rut, you are dead. You're in trouble. The only thing, only way to get out of a rut in that situation was to fall down. That's what this word reproof means. It means 
bam, somebody hits you and says, you can't continue in this path. That's what the Word of God does. Not people. That's what the Word of God does. It confronts you just like that. It knocks you down. But then it corrects you, which means it stands you up straight. It puts you in the right path so you can progress. And then, it, and then it's, it's profitable for instruction and in righteousness, which tells you how to live. How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to live? The keys to knowing how to live the Christian life isn't being uh, uh, up on the latest technology. That's fine, but that's, you, you can still write paper checks and be a good Christian, a follower of Jesus. Sorry, all you millennials. I know you think that you, that you can't, but you can. You can do it the old-fashioned way. You can do it reading the King James Bible if you want. Um, and so the Bible, that's how we do it. It's the Word of God. This is why when we're dealing with our own life or we're dealing with somebody else, we know they're, they're being held captive by something in their life. What do we do? We need to go to the Word of God. But I don't know where to start. Uh, okay, then you need to start reading the Bible and marking your Bible up because you're going to get confronted by the Bible. And you know what God's going to do? This is how he works. He will lead you through this process of being reproved by the Word so that he's going to bring somebody in your life later and you can show them, look what the Word of God says. This is what it says. And I can remember when God confronted me. I can remember that those 3 a.m. Uh, meetings with the Lord. <laughs> he wouldn't let me sleep. And I started reading the text, and there it is right there. It just confronts me right in the face. And then you can pass that along when God brings someone in your life who's facing the same thing. Uh, Paul, when he talks about his own weakness, what he's saying is, God uses me when I'm weak, not when I'm strong. These guys are arguing, Paul's weak. And Paul says, you're right, I am weak. That's the only kind of person that God can use is somebody who knows they're weak. See, we're all weak in, in relationship to God, aren't we? In comparison to God, I'm not, a, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a super Christian. I'm just an ordinary Christian, but I have the word of God. And you have the word of God. And so we do this through the Word of God. And here's just an example, and that is in 1 John, you have the evidences that you've been born of God. If you read 1 John, you'll see it's cyclical, and it keeps going through these evidences. But I want to make a point. The evidences aren't given there to prove to you that you're not born again. That's not the point of 1 John. 1 John was written to bring assurance to the heart of the believer. In fact, he says that in 1 John 3. I think I'll have you look at that passage. 1 John chapter 3 Turn to 1 John, way back towards the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3, notice verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Don't, in other words, don't just say you love someone. doesn't mean you need to stop saying that, but it's got to be more than that, right? So he says, let us not love in word or with tongue. In other words, with, with just our words only, but in deed and truth. We will know that but this, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. What does that mean? It means when I love in truth and in deed, then I, it will give me confidence about my relationship with God. 
He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. And get this, in whatever our heart condemns us. I'm not even going to ask the question because I know the answer. All of you Christians, all of you who are believers, you've had your heart condemn you. It happens all the time. And he says the thing that will will give you this confidence before God is by loving in deed and truth. And it will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. When I'm living right with God, everything else is taken care of. Because he is the one who knows all things. He knows my heart. And so here in 1 John, these three evidences that you have been born of God. This is, and being born of God means Christ has come to live within you. 1 John 5, 11, and 12 says the way that you received eternal life was Jesus came to live within you. And the evidence is that Jesus is in you, that you have been born of God, is these three things. It's repeated over and over again. You obey his commands, you love God and his people, and you believe God's word. Those three things, we could call them obedience, love, and faith. Obedience to his commands, love for God and his people, and believing God's word, having confidence that God's testimony about Jesus is true. It's really true. So when you read the word of God, it testifies to your heart. Now, what will happen is if you ever take the time to study, the first thing we're going to look at on Sunday nights is the the nature of the Bible, what, what it really is, how the Bible describes itself. And once you come to know that and understand it, you no longer will come to the Bible and wonder, it won't be like this. I wonder if that's true. You know, like uh, John 15 says, uh, Jesus is saying, this is Jesus in the upper room. The night he's going to be arrested, he says to his disciples, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Once you understand the nature of the Bible, you won't doubt that at all. You might say, I wonder, how, I wonder what that means exactly, me abiding in Christ and Christ's word abiding in me. Abiding in Christ is a picture, a very vivid picture. It's, it's almost like a physical picture of you resting completely in Jesus and his work. Is that what you rest in or do you rest in your performance? Do you rest in what Christ has done in your place, or do you rest in the fact that you've done a pretty good job of living like a Christian for a long time? Well, if, you, if that's what you're abiding in, you're not abiding in Christ. That's why God lets us fail from time to time. Have you noticed that? He allows you to fail, and so you turn to him and say, God, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I failed in this way. Why not? So Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. You really are. And God's grace is far greater than you could ever imagine. God saves real sinners, and that's what we are. It's a wonderful thing because it it delivers us from having to be defensive. Uh, But it's a long, long process. (laughs) I still haven't arrived at that one. But he's working on us, isn't he? And so uh, this, you examine your hearts to see if Christ is in you. 
The way you can see that Christ is in you is that you do obey his commandments. Oh, I'm not saying you never disobey. But there's a lot of things if I said, why are you doing that? It's because Jesus told me to. Because Jesus commanded me to do this. And you love God and his people. Went to a funeral yesterday. Uh, it was uh, the Price's son-in-law who died. And I only met him one time, didn't know him. I was so impressed with the fact that there were so many people there who loved him and had been loved by him. See, that's what they remembered about him. What are, you, what are they going to remember you for? For who you loved? That's what I hope. I hope for me and I hope for you. That would be the distinguishing characteristic, the way that we loved others. Not just the way we love God, but if we're really loving God, we'll love his people. And we will love this world in the way we should love the world. Enough to validate the gospel in the way that we treat people. What if God was to use you as a witness to somebody whose lifestyle you absolutely hate? And you couldn't even take the time to speak to this person because they're so despicable to you. What if God were to put you in a situation and you were forced to show love towards them in order to bring them the gospel? I still have this picture. I run into it every once in a while of Janae in Uganda, in a prison in Uganda, filthy place. And she's down on her knees washing the feet of this prisoner and doctoring his feet in some way. I thought, that is the, that is the greatest picture I have. I, I use that sometimes <laughs> when I'm teaching about what real humility is. Humility is simply seeing your, the truth about yourself. You're a servant if you're a Christian. I'm a servant. And so Jesus showed us what it meant to be a servant. When he got up from dinner girded himself about like a servant. He dressed himself like a slave. And he bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples because he wanted to teach them something important. Not, you should always wash your feet before you eat. No, he wanted to show them. This is what God has called us to as his followers. We are servants. As servants of Christ, we serve people. And sometimes God puts us in positions to serve people that we would much rather condemn than serve. We would much rather let them know how distasteful they are to us than to show them the love of Christ in our actions. So, yeah, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's, it is a, it's a, a good practice but don't look for sin. I can already tell you there's a bunch of it there. Look for Christ. Look for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we are so humbled by the reality of who Christ is and what he has done. When we read the Gospels and read his life and read the way that he related to people, the way he loved the outcasts and the broken and the downhearted, it shames us. We want to avoid people like that, and yet Jesus sought them out and served them. And oh God, we pray that we'd be like Jesus. Help us to examine ourselves today to see if we are in the faith, that Christ is there, obviously, in our lives. 
And so when we ask ourselves, do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I can say, yes, absolutely. Did he die for your sins? Yes, absolutely. He died for my sins. Was he raised from the dead? Yes. I absolutely believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he's coming back for us. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our, our confidence that we are followers of Jesus Christ because we see Christ in us. That's what we desire and ask you for. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.